another principle that I love, which is that the more specific you can be, actually the more universal you become. That trying to do a bunch of general things that are all different is never going to be as powerful as telling one really incredibly detailed specific story about that particular context. And through that, you access the universal. That's what I love about facilitating these kinds of experiences because I get to hear so many people's incredible stories and they're so specific. And the more and more diverse stories I hear, the more and more I get the sense that actually as humans, we have so much in common and there's such a universal experience underlying all of that. That was Mallory Combermal, co-founder of The Inheritance Project. And this is The Natural Born Thinkers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Natural Born Thinkers, a podcast designed to help you live a more creative lifestyle. My name is Sam Hunter, and my job is to help people tap into their creative potential and solve their biggest individual and business challenges. I set up this podcast to reveal the secret source behind the creative thinking process and to provide a perspective on how we can live a life that enables us to more confidently draw upon our natural creativity. I believe that our minds are all uniquely wired to think differently and that the world depends on our diverse creative potential. Today's session is all about the idea of inheritance, not the physical assets we might be set to receive from family members sometime in the future, but the stories and experiences that have shaped who we are today. Consciously or unconsciously, we are all shaped by the stories we have lived, those that we've heard, those that we've created, and those that we tell ourselves. Our very identities, thoughts and belief sets are influenced by the life we have already lived. Mallory Combermal, today's guest, is a co-founder of The Inheritance Project, an organization whose mission it is to help people unpack their past so that they can form a deeper understanding of themselves and others. In my conversation with Mallory, I learned that by truly knowing why we are the way we are, we can more deeply connect with the person we have become and who we want to be. We can also change the way in which we connect with others as we become more curious about people's true identities. This idea of better knowing the self and connecting with others is key to the idea of natural born thinkers. A deeper awareness about how we have been shaped by our past can provide insights into a number of things when it comes to creative problem solving. For example, our perspective and belief sets on creativity, our confidence in our own problem solving abilities, the rich mix of passions, memories and experiences that act as unique sources of inspiration to us, and the tools to form deeper connections with others so that we might enhance the way in which we collaborate. Mallory Combermal, welcome to Natural Born Thinkers. Hi Sam, it is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So today's conversation is going to be exploring the missions of the two organizations that you are a founder of, the Inheritance Project and the Breast Connection. But before we dive deep into this, I thought it would be good to share a little bit more about you. You and I met about six years ago, I guess, uh, where we worked for a, together for a while while designing facilitation problem-solving experiences for executive teams. However, we both left a couple of years ago you to pursue the start of your businesses, and me, well, to have my second baby. <laughs> Two very different creative adventures. 
In addition to being an entrepreneur, you're a diehard philanthropist, most of which you do on top of the day job. And you are a qualified yoga teacher and devoted yogi, <laughs> which I think is amazing. And it's probably perhaps daunting to people who are who haven't started their creative adventures yet or are thinking about it and not sure where to start. But I've, I guess I've had the pleasure of watching you grow in these directions as both a person and professional. And I can't imagine anyone else doing it with such grace, tenacity and integrity and I feel there's so much we can learn from you on our conversation today. Thank you so much, Sam. That was a lovely and flattering introduction. <laughs> I'm really, really excited to get into things. Before we dive in today, I, I, as I was saying, as we were talking earlier, warming up to this conversation, I have literally thought about this uh, since we first had the idea of it, because the theme of today's conversation is inheritance. And not inheritance in terms of the jewellery, the money, what have you, all those assets that you might get if a family member sadly dies, but you have a different perspective on inheritance, which is the stories, the personality, values and belief that we've inherited from the environments, experiences and cultures that we either live in now or have lived in. And I just have, since you've flipped that perspective on the words inheritance and brought that into my life I just honestly haven't stopped thinking about things and looking at things from that lens so really excited to to talk about this which funnily enough is your new business part of your new business or the essence of your new business the inheritance project yes the inheritance project is the business that I'm a co-founder of, along with Katya Stepanov and Ariel Figueroa. And one of our missions is to help people do exactly what you just described, to realize that every single person in the world has a unique inheritance, which is made up of our culture, the way we were raised, our identity, our life experiences, and that everyone has a unique story. And that's so often when we get into conflicts with people, whether it's in the workplace or our personal lives, <laughs> our families, it's often because we're just coming from different perspectives, different contexts, and haven't taken the time to really understand the whole inheritance that the other person is bringing to the table, bringing to that conversation. It sounds like a really simple idea, right? We're all different and we all have different ways of seeing things. But I think so often, especially when we get into the heat of the moment on things, it's something that we can easily, easily get forgotten and takes a lot of training and time and investigation to really get into the right mindset and have the skills for how to engage people in a way that keeps all those things in mind. Yeah. And I, I think where you, you mentioned there, um, people understanding other people's inheritance, but when you first introduced this idea to me as well, it's also, I'm not always entirely sure that people really understand their own inheritance or can really articulate their own story as well. So I think, uh, when you shared it with me, I thought it was powerful, obviously, to help people understand one another better, but also to enlighten people to really understand their self. Because it's not particularly as you get older and you've been through a lot of stuff and been to many different places and different experiences, you don't often sit back and take the time to reflect on how those experiences have shaped you. You're exactly right. I think 
Our aspiration is for everyone to regularly be engaged in self-reflection and self-inquiry into what makes you who you are. And if I think about my own journey, it's because I've been lucky enough to be introduced to that, those concepts and a lot of those tools early in life, that having those moments of really reflecting on my story, the influences that shaped me, my own inheritance, those questions that I've been asking myself are really the ones that have led me to where I am today. And I also totally agree with you that I think that it's really hard to understand other people if we don't first understand ourselves. <laughs> you're, to you're absolutely right that that is the first step because without self-awareness, that's when our conversations with others break down. If we don't even know what we're bringing to the table, how can we even think about being empathetic to what someone else is? So I, yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up. And that's why a lot of a lot of the things that we do and we offer start with the self, with the, with the individual. Yeah. And you know what it got me thinking is that so many people look at their phone on their Fitbit every day to check in on their health stats, but we don't, we don't spend the same amount of time checking in on our, you know, how are we developing stats <laughs> or who am I stats? So it, it kind of feels a little bit like the next health piece or the nutrition to our lives about that with the self-reflection so I'm really excited about it. And I think the obvious place to start here is you you just mentioned that you've been fortunate enough to be raised in an environment where self-reflection was something you did often, uh, or it was a part of what you do, and it's something that you've sustained. And you have been shaped and you're aware of the stories that have shaped you. So I guess for those who don't know you, as well as I've had the opportunity to get to know you, Let's just maybe start from the very beginning and, and ask your question, going back to birth, where were you born and raised and what are some of the cultures and stories that shaped your childhood? Mm -hmm. Thank you for asking that. I always love to start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. I was born in Singapore. My mom is Singaporean Chinese and my father is French American. He's from New York City, which is where I currently live. But I was raised in Northwest London in a very diverse multicultural neighborhood. I went to school with a lot of people from whose families came from India and all different parts of the world. So I was really lucky from a young age to be exposed to the incredible diversity that exists in the world. And also within my own family, saw firsthand how often conflicts between my parents often came from cultural differences and their different cultural perspectives having been raised in such different environments. So from an early age, I, I was gifted this understanding by the nature of who I was and the family that I was born into and the environments that I got to be exposed to. And I took all of this totally for granted until I went to University in Virginia in the US. I happened to get a scholarship to go to college there, which I'm super grateful for. It was only there that I really met for the first time people who grew up in very monocultural or non diverse environments in the US and realized that a lot of the things that I took for granted in my upbringing weren't things that were obvious to other people. And that a lot of people who just never had the opportunity to be exposed to people different than them 
have a really different way of seeing and interacting with the world. And it was a journey for me to, to learn and understand that and realize that the value in my own life experiences and the, the way that shaped my professional journey as a facilitator, because I think if I think about the role I played in my family or even among, um, you know, my house growing up, that cross-cultural fluency and facilitation was a huge part of it. And I also was raised by parents who told me often that being mixed race is an advantage and that I'm lucky and privileged to have access and understanding to many different cultures and to know how to be in a lot of different environments. And that was explicitly told to me as something that was beneficial. It's really interesting because not also not, I realized later having then while I was at college, I got really interested in anthropology and race theory and ended up writing my thesis on multiracial identity. And as part of that ethnographic project, I interviewed a lot of mixed race people and realized that not everyone was raised with that narrative either, that I was actually really lucky to have be taught and feel pride in my heritage and feel like I could move between worlds effortlessly rather than being told that I didn't fit in anywhere, which is how sometimes people who have a similar background to me feel. So I started realizing how important and significant the stories we're told as children about who we are and what we're, we're capable of are in shaping our life experience. And I could go into a lot more detail, but I will, I think I'll leave it at that for now. Yeah, I, I mean, I, Mallory, it's so interesting. And, and also, it's it's funny how you mentioned that you're a moment of enlightenment about the gift that essentially you were born into, that your parents have highlighted as a gift and not something to, you, you know, single you out and be afraid of, is something that you really recognized you had when you went to college or university, which is like when I think a lot of people wake up <laughs> and maybe have that first rec realization of who they are, because you know, you're out your comfort zone, you're probably not with your group of friends anymore, you're meeting brand new people, and you're really having to rely upon who you are right there, right then. So it's a moment of really checking in, because you have to an understanding on who you are, and how you come to the world, and you start to recognize differences that you're probably you've not come across depending on the background that you come from. Which brings me to my next question, which I actually found really difficult to phrase. I was thinking that I, I really wanted you to share something on your heritage from your parents and your race and um, all the, in, the, just such an amazing mix that you have in your family. And I found it really awkward to come up with the right question because I didn't want to say, well, who is Mallory? Because I don't think that's the point of the inheritance project. It's far too big an inquiry question and, and no structure. And I also didn't want to offend because you don't walk up to someone and be like, oh, hi, what race are you? Are your parents from the same uh, country or not? <laughs> like, it's just not a starting point for conversation. So then I, you know, started trying on some of the pieces that you highlight on your website and you use you've used as a starting point is it Kwame the book that was written on uh, with the five C's framework 
Can you expand upon those five C's? Because I'll do a horrible job of it. <laughs> sure. In, so in the Inheritance Project, we have a lot of different tools and resources to help people start this self-inquiry of who am I and what am I bringing into the world? And one of them is a free online workbook that anyone can do that's on our website. And we also do a lot of facilitated experiences that use a lot of different techniques to help get into this topic. And one of the structuring frameworks that we use across a lot of our work is Kwame Appiah's five C's framework of identity, which is from his book, The Lies That Find, which I highly recommend everyone checking out if they're interested in the topic of identity. And I want to preface this by saying that any framework is not going to be holistic and comprehensive and is obviously going to be lacking in some nuance because you can't sum up the totality of who a person is in you know five neat columns. But I do think it's really helpful to your point to have a framework to start as a entry point to prompt the conversation because otherwise inheritance and identity are such huge, vast, all-encompassing topics that it's really hard to know where to begin. But I I wanted to preface that because we always have people in our workshops saying things like, but what about this? What about that? And yes, those things are there, but let's start with the big ones. So the five C's are country. So what country were you born and raised in or were your ancestors connected to? Culture, which is what cultures have you been a part of throughout your life that have shaped you, which could be connected to country or could be different. So for example, in my case, I would say a big culture that I was a part of is London multicultural culture, (laughs) um, which is quite different from English culture or culture in the rest of, in other parts of the UK, for example. Well, like where I live, (laughs) 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 which, uh, yeah, which is in, in, in the country (laughs) culture. I, I, I did not I was not raised with the benefit of having such a, a mixed and diverse environment to grow up in. And, and it's something I have endeavoured to make sure that I have got in later life to the point of, and we'll get probably get to this later, is that, yes, you can inherit something when you basically, as a child, you don't necessarily have a choice uh, to live yeah. anywhere but the house that your parents have chosen to live in unless you want to emancipate. Okay. <laughs> um, or, But then as you grow older, you can you can make different choices and inherit new parts of your personality. So yeah, I, I just wanted to put that point in there as you were making the contrast between <laughs> your, your upbringing in the UK and mine. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's such a good point, Sam, that it's really important to be aware of our inheritance, but that doesn't mean we have to be limited or defined by it and becoming aware of how all the ways we were raised, the environments that we were a part of, how that shaped us, that is the first step to freeing ourselves from some of the ways that that shaped us that maybe we aren't serving our best interests nowadays and allow us to change our story about ourselves. So I think that's really important is that just because we identify with or have experienced these five C's in certain ways doesn't mean that we're limited by that. Just right. having that understanding gives us the power to transcend it is how I like to, to think about it. 
And yeah. I interrupted you because you got you did country culture. culture, class, which is socioeconomic status, which includes income level, education, and social hierarchies that determine how we have access to opportunity. Those kinds of factors, and then color, which is very simple. It's just the color of your skin and how that impacts the way that you're treated in society. And then fifth is creed, which is the belief system that you were raised in or are a part of now. And that could be a formalized religion, or it could be the overarching worldview or set of beliefs that you were brought up with or hold true now. Great. So those are the five C's. And even within those, there is a lot to unpack and investigate about how each of those affect your life experience. And I think it's a really, really good starting point. Something that we get asked a lot is where does gender fit into this? And for the purposes of this inquiry, culture is where we get a lot of our beliefs and ideas about what's appropriate behavior for different cultures, for diff- sorry, for, for different genders. Different genders. Right. Um, and you can see just looking across the world how different that is culture by culture. That's a good place to start to think about that. But yeah, I really encourage anyone who's listening, if you want to start this inquiry to check out our online workbook, because it goes through a lot more thoughtful questions about each of those topics and how they influence your life experience and and who you've become. I I did go through each of the questions and um, admittedly, I didn't go, I didn't answer all of them because let's just say I'm I'm struggling to to be a mother of two and try and manage a mini career at the same time. (laughs) But the, um, some of like the questions are just so powerful and some of them are so deep that make you sit there and, and really think. For example, let's just bring up one which makes me smile a bit as I reflect on myself, not the, not the question being funny itself, but one of the questions is, does your name have any significant meaning to it? And, you know, there are people whose names really do like people have been named after a famous person or somewhere where they were conceived or um, their name can be warrior queen in a translation and and then I, I think about my name well my name is Samantha but my father always wanted me to have a girl's name that could be shortened to a boy's name <laughs> and I've never really really thought about that and and what that means to who I am and how I've been raised but I always thought that was a a funny idea I don't know I think they were joking I hope they were joking but I do (laughs) but yeah I I thought that was really interesting but I I did actually have a go at doing a quick high level on on the five C's just in preparation for this conversation and just to show the way that this is really going to change the dialogue for people because you know, usually when you're in an organizational setting, you always get that question of, oh, so tell us a little bit about yourself or tell us an interesting mm-hmm. fact, which is, you know, funny if someone tells you a silly story, but it doesn't really give you an insight into who that person is at all. Because they'll usually be like, hi, my name's Sam. I'm married. I've got two kids. I live here. I, lo- I love yoga. I used to be a professional swimmer. Like it, it's just a laundry list of stuff 
Whereas if you apply the five C's, so hi, my name's Sam, I'm Caucasian, I'm a daughter to an English mother and a Scottish father. I grew up in England, to the point you made earlier, a non-diverse town, and went to a private school and spent a lot of my time in Scotland and also chose to swim for Scotland. So I'm very close with my family who encouraged me to be whatever I wanted to be and speak out and be myself no matter what. So looking at, I think that's my belief set. And then I couple that with my ambition and commitment through my swimming career. Like those are two of the biggest things that shaped me about my childhood. And if that took me like, what, two minutes, like 30 seconds to say. And I think you learned a lot more about me <laughs> in that. 30 seconds than perhaps I would have done in a, another introduction if you were to say, tell me a little bit about you. Yes. Thank you for sharing all that about yourself, Sam. It's really beautiful to hear. And this is one of my big dreams too, is for people, whenever we interact with others, whether it's at work or in a social setting to actually move beyond small talk and go into big talk or deep talk and really get to know people at a different level of depth. And I think you just really illustrated that well. And I, I do truly believe that if we really understood the human story and the forces that shaped each other, so much better collaborate with one another, whether it's in a workplace or being in partnership or in a family or, or whatever the situation is with other people. Um, one of the fundamental nature of human society is that we are always needing to collaborate with each other to get stuff done, to find solutions to things, to organize our communities. And I know that so much of that happens on such a transactional level right now. The more we really get deeper into who people are and what's really motivating them, the, the better we can work together. And I, and I really have seen this even now that I have been running my own business and have my own team, applying that to our own workplace and really getting into these conversations with our interns and our employees and seeing the difference in culture that we're able to make and the difference in the way people show up and how committed they are to their work has been really amazing compared to some of the other environments that I've been in where everything is much more surface level. You're at a, a point here where you can really change the dialogue and the way that we talk to each other and relate. And just to bring an example, like we were, I was watching an Instagram feed where people we used to work with were posting a little bit about their life. And I learned things about people I that had never come up before. Like one one woman's uh, family ran a bakery in a remote German village. And, you know, why didn't that ever come up? <laughs> like our, mm -hmm. our job was to um, create inventive and interesting experiences for executives to connect and talk about their biggest problems. And often to do that, we really had to draw upon experiences and inspirations from our own life or other areas that we've researched to help create and curate a really amazing experience and how cool if we'd ever been able to pull upon the fact that you know we had an artisan baker in our group and how might we have used some of that uh, creativity and her family to help curate an experience in the room and it's just something that never came up um, and might have if we 
we're more open to talking about inheritance. Mm-hmm. I love the word you inheritance because it's really it's it really is commanding and you're owning who you are and what you've got. Mm-hmm. Some people in you know different contexts, if you come into a scenario and maybe you've had a difficult life, people might say you know, you have baggage. Or if I think about some of the things I've been through, I could definitely have quote unquote baggage. And people can have a negative reaction to some of the things they've inherited or gone through. And and maybe that disguises some of the good that, you know, a traumatic experience has actually had and and how it's helped shape them maybe for the good, better, or maybe they need to take a look at what it's created and think about how they might want to change. And as you start looking at it from that perspective, it becomes really contentious and potentially really difficult for people to go back and look through their inheritance. So I'd love to know, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, but I'd really love to know how you manage that because I I, I know that you're not a counsellor or psychologist. I mean, I know you're a very intelligent person too and can probably play many, many different roles. So I, I don't want to disparage or anything from that perspective but how do you manage that for that in a room full of people so you so people feel comfortable to start talking about their inheritance mm. yeah that's a fantastic question and you're absolutely right that for most people actually inheritance is a very painful subject whether it's your own personal life or thinking back to the experiences of your of your parents or those that came before you. And the truth is in our world has a lot of violence, a lot of pain and a lot of trauma in it all over the world. And so most people have experiences with that to varying degrees of severity. And I'll say that all of us who are on the co-founding team of this company have a background, not just as professional facilitators, but also as healers or facilitators of personal transformation, whether it's through yoga or meditation teaching or breath work or ceremony. And so we've all really deeply studied the mechanisms of how trauma works in the body, the nervous system, and take a trauma-informed approach to all the sessions that we design. And some of the things that we always do in our experiences to make it a safe place for people. We don't like we don't like to say safe space actually. We like to say we're making a brave space because we always let people know that it's highly likely that when we start talking about these topics whether in our own lives or hearing other people's stories that will be uncomfortable. And discomfort is actually important for growth. We don't grow if we are not uncomfortable. And Sam, you know this from being a professional athlete, you have to push yourself a little bit outside your comfort zone in order to take yourself to the next level. And so we always prepare people with firstly what to expect and that discomfort might happen and make sure that everyone's okay with that. And really lay out clear ground rules at the start of any facilitation about how we are going to engage with each other and communicate so that everyone can be honored and that people feel um, 
feel they can share. So having really setting clear expectations and having clear get ground rules are really important. And then thirdly, always giving people the option to leave. So if something's really triggering or too uncomfortable for someone to the point where it they don't feel safe, you know, they never have to stay in the experience. We always give people the choice to be in charge of their own experience and know for themselves what's too much, what's an overwhelming amount of investigation. And then lastly, the way that we structure all of our facilitations and and experiences is through, what's the right way to put this? We slowly increase the intensity over the course of the session. So when we start off, we're not going to ask you to relive your childhood trauma (laughs) as the first as the icebreaker, you know? There'll be some icebreaker. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of delicate trust building that that takes that needs to happen in a group to get people into a, a level of depth. And that's where some of the art of facilitation and experience design comes in to structure it so that people are start up with warm-up questions that are comfortable. And then we gradually push into more challenging or deeper topics in different ways and always give people we give people a lot of space for inner reflection, individual, even when we do group experiences, we do a lot of time for individual reflection before we share and talk together. And that's also really helpful for people who are more introverted or who might have never talked about this stuff before and need some time to prepare or get their thoughts together before sharing. And sharing is always optional. Again, everyone is in charge of their own experience and can go to the level that they want to go. But in general, what I found is that actually, since in our society, we don't have that many outlets for these kind of real conversations about these types of experience that are shaped us, especially the challenging stuff, that most people are excited to come to the table and open up about those kinds of things. Because for most of us, we haven't had a forum where that's socially acceptable in the past. And it can be very, very healing for people to share their story and also realize that maybe someone else in the group has experienced something really similar to them or to just be able to share and be received and supported in that and know that they're still worthy and whole. So there's a lot, there's a lot of nuance that goes into it, but those are some thoughts. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, it does. Like you're smart about it, basically. And, you know, you give people that out as as they need or you warm them up so they can learn. Because I think asking yourself some of these questions is a bit of a skill. You don't often unpack your life, as you say, like it is probably very cleansing for people to come to a table and like learn something about themselves that they kind of know, but they've never really articulated. So I think that was a really helpful answer. And it got me thinking because, you know, I'm a pretty open person. I'm not on the introverted side of, of your one of your workshops. I'd be the, the big extrovert in the room. I'm the big extrovert in most rooms. But, um, you know, I did, I did, you know, so when we spawned up for this conversation, I did think about some of my traumas, some of my really, you know, being an extrovert, not much of my life is private, but I do have some, <laughs> I do have some relatively traumatic things that, that happened 
and you know I, I don't often delve into them because it is painful I don't I don't like to do it and me and my husband talked about one of them and we realized you, you know behind the pain and behind how unpleasant that experience was something really great about my personality came out of it and something really great about my purpose that I will ensure is passed on to my children to make sure that you, you know what happened to me never ever happens to them so it it is um I think that's really uh powerful if you if you can sit there I mean I had support around me and to be able to do that and it sounds as though within your group settings for people who are interested in starting this process that they in a group setting they wouldn't be alone or if they were sitting there doing the survey by themselves I guess you would encourage them to engage a partner or a friend if they were finding a topic difficult and um, getting the support necessarily to go through it. Yes. And thank you for sharing your own story, Sam. That's a really powerful example of how you were able to transform your own relationship with your experience and retell your own story in a way that is really empowering to you so that it's not just this awful thing that happened to me, but that experience, you're able to have ownership and agency over it and to realize how that's given you strength and resilience and, and a way that you want to contribute to raising your kids that you might not have got otherwise, which is really, really powerful. And I think that's really what the process that you just went through that you just talked about is really my dream for all humans to go through this with everything that they found challenging in their lives and to come out of that process feeling empowered by their story and having the words and the language to talk about themselves and their life experience in a way that makes them feel good and ready to move forward. So that's really powerful. And yes, you're really, you're right that of course, if you are going through any of these kinds of things and need support, we recommend that you see a licensed professional. Actually, on our website, we have a really great list of resources, both of places that you can go to get therapy that we recommend and also a lot of different books on trauma and healing that might be good for people. So yeah, I, I, I think you're right. It's a hard process to go through alone. And that's why that's part of what inspired us to make this company and create programs for people to go through this process together. Because I think also doing this, doing this kind of work in community can be extra powerful too, rather than feeling like you're thinking through and analyzing your life all alone. Yes. And getting again, different perspectives, because sometimes you need those alternative perspectives to help you break through looking at your life through the lens that you've always looked at it to give you a new sense of meaning or what that's actually given to you so I think this was a really important part of the conversation but you also just mentioned and I have to pick up on this about your dream for the inheritance project and I think we talked about the inheritance project obviously your um, we, we've talked about the inheritance project and the concept of inheritance, but we haven't really dived into the the one liner of what the inheritance project is and what your your vision is for the company. 
we've we've obviously probably people could probably read between the lines based on our conversation just now but i think for the record you should probably one line it <laughs> i'll give you my short elevator pitch which is we offer educational programs and resources to individuals and companies and teams to help people investigate and become aware of who you are all the cultural factors that shaped your identity, and then to also learn the skills to engage others in productive conversation, especially those who might be different to themselves. So that manifests in diversity inclusion trainings and leadership trainings for companies and organizations. And we're also in the process of putting together a curriculum for middle schools and high schools. And ultimately, our dream is for this type of investigation and these type of skills, both of self-awareness and self-inquiry, but also the ability to engage others in these kind of conversations to be widespread, that everyone in the country as they go through high school and college and the workplace is doing this work and becoming aware of who they are, feeling empowered and owning their own story and knowing how to engage others in genuine dialogue. And the reason why I'm so passionate about this, especially as someone who lives in the U.S. right now, is that I feel like the level of discourse, especially around politics and society, has just gotten so divisive and dehumanizing that I truly feel that by bringing that our work in these programs and transforming the way people think about themselves and think about others is the first step to creating a better society where we can all collaborate more effectively and where we can celebrate each other's differences without feeling like that takes away from our own individuality or uniqueness. And I also think, um, as I was, and, and by the way, I think it's an amazing mission and, and actually really world changing and as well as being individually life changing if if it, if everyone were to em, embrace this. And um, one of the, the things that also came to my mind as we're talking about this is I would say I feel when people don't know someone very well, if they're meeting someone, people pull up upon stereotypes and assumptions, which is just the wrong starting point. If if we talk about societal society and trying to drive society societal change, if we can break through stereotype and assumptions of what someone's story must have been or or is, and take the time to sit down and listen and process, it will change mindsets and understanding, and therefore how people approach different situations. Yes, one hundred percent. One of our biggest principles at the inheritance project is always lead with curiosity and don't make assumptions goes hand in hand with that that if something someone says rubs you the wrong way or you notice yourself making a story about that person and what they must be like based on how they look or their behavior or whatever they're doing in that moment to just remind ourselves that that person has a whole life and story and history that I don't know and likely, in fact, 
almost all of the time, if I just took the time to understand where that person is coming from and truly their intention in this moment, I their behavior would make total sense from their worldview. So always leading with curiosity is something that I try to do all the time. And obviously, it's something that takes continual work and continual awareness. And I do think, just as you said, that if everyone adopted this mindset of being curious first, especially when something makes you uncomfortable or rubs you the wrong way, to start with curiosity rather than dismissing that person um, and, and seeking to genuinely understand where that person is coming from. And my first training and facilitation was actually through the Sustained Dialogue Institute, which is an amazing organization started by Dr. Harold Saunders, who was an international peace negotiator and created this process called Sustained Dialogue to help parties who were literally at war <laughs> come to an agreement. Um, and first in that process, before even talking about solutions, is understanding where the other person is coming from. And so often in society, we don't even give ourselves the chance to do that step one, to be curious about where that other person is coming from. And I, I really do feel like curiosity is the key to, to so many things and also just makes life more fun. <laughs> if I just realize how little I actually know about other people, then I can be always learning stuff and always being fascinated by the people I'm around because so often people come out with stories that totally surprise me or delight me or inspire me that I would never have got to hear if I hadn't simply asked. I totally agree. And I think that's one of the reasons why in my life I've chosen to live, you know, talking about, uh, you know, my background of, the, you know, let's, let's not lie, my, <laughs> particularly back in the 80s, 90s, like my town is very white. And, you know, going to university still was pretty white. It wasn't until I started getting into big cities. Um, I, I lived in Paris, I worked in London, and then moving really to New York, where I was for seven years that, you know, my world, the world around me just really opened up. And with that, I changed. Every time I lived in a different country, I changed because my, my stories changed, my perspectives changed, my information that I took on board helped propel me forwards. So I guess putting yourself to, you, you talked about being a professional athlete, putting yourself in an uncomfortable environment, putting yourself in a brand new country, particularly if, okay, I, I did speak pretty reasonable French, but it wasn't perfect at the time, um, particularly because I arrived with a hangover. <laughs> you know, it's really daunting and you have to sit up, you have to listen, you learn all these stories and different lives and it's, and it, it's just the richness of the world and the people in it is really exciting. If you, I guess, if you look at the world from the vantage point we're talking about here, but I, I guess not everybody has that opportunity or, or um, knows where to start to have that vantage point. So opening your mind as a first step, being curious, I think it's a really um, great first step that you outlined there. Another part that really resonated with me is, is talking about the rub when you hear or you learn something that really jars potentially with a belief set that you have and I think the first thing is to be you know what just be honest just own up that that really really irks you or you're just you can't you can't get your head around it and then from there 
like having a dialogue to unpack it and learn more so that you can move past that visceral reaction and find a place to land with it that you can be more comfortable with. And I, I think a lot of the time people just stop at the bit that just can't abide by it. They just don't believe it, don't want to look at it in any other way. I don't know if you see any of that in the conversations and workshops that you have or if that has any resonance. Yes, absolutely. I think there are a couple different things here. One is I feel like I notice this a lot in the social media realm where people don't take the time to do what you just described and go straight into their reaction or tirade about why that other person is wrong. I mean, just looking at the comment sections on the internet can be really aggravating. And so we released this guide a while back um, for people to, as you go through social media and you see a post that you have an emotional reaction to, for whatever reason, it makes you angry or you feel that person's perspective is really wrong and it's frustrating to do two, two types of inquiry. First, your own self-inquiry. So think about, wow, I'm going to be aware and notice that this opinion or idea I feel so emotionally charged about. What is it about me that's making me have that reaction? What is it in my own life experiences my own stories, my own narratives, my own values that makes that person's opinion so aggravating to me. And understand that for yourself and just know where you're coming from. And I'm not saying anger it can be a totally valid response to, to certain opinions and and beliefs, especially depending on your life experience. So I think it's really important to first understand where that's coming from in yourself. And then secondly, do the inquiry with the other person if you can, if you feel like you have the capacity to understand, oh, wait, what do they really mean by that? Am I really making an assumption about what they're saying based on something I think? Am I really listening to them? If there's something that I find challenging about it, instead of rushing to convince them why they're wrong, can I ask them a question instead, like, what led them to this point of view? Or um, what do they find compelling about looking at things this way, whatever it is, and engage in an actual conversation. Because if you really want to change someone's perspective, you're not going to do that by telling them you're wrong, they're wrong. <laughs> And they're not going to learn, and you're not going to learn anything from that interaction. But take, but taking those two steps, especially doing that self awareness first, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of thought and time, and a lot of integrity. Like you have to want to, or you have like a lot of this is being open to looking deep in yourself because none of us are perfect, none of us are rosy and lovely in every way. Everybody has a streak of something there that you know you have to manage <laughs> and you have to be honest that it's there so you can so you can manage it like that's like one of the first steps so yes it does take a lot of energy and it doesn't come overnight I think it's probably another well I'm just talking from my own personal experience like learning the, the bad bits about me has taken years <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you, you know then learning how to 
to, to manage them has also <laughs> taken a while. But, it, you know, once you start looking in and, and being able to understand what, what you personally feel that you need to change for yourself, would be helpful as you start to unpack your inheritance. Yes, you're right on that. This is a lifelong journey and I'm still learning these skills every day too. And it requires constant practice and some discipline because we've all been conditioned by society, by our upbringing to behave and treat others in a certain way. And we all have inherited biases. We all have, you know, we all rush to snap judgments or assumptions about others. Like that's just part of human nature. Our brain's actually designed that way to have those kind of heuristics to process information more quickly. So it's totally natural. And there's no, I think what's really important as you start to develop this awareness is to not judge yourself because I mean, we all are human and we're all imperfect, just like you said. And what's important is that we're becoming more and more aware of the forces that make us who we are. And sometimes that feels unpleasant because you or I look into myself and I think, oh, that's not really how I want to behave or how I want to think about myself. But that's definitely still there in me. (laughs) But seeing it, acknowledging it is the important part. If I reject or judge that part of myself, then I'm actually still trapped by it. Right. It's not helpful. Yes, exactly. Because you can't move past it and you, you just feel feel bad. Um and and I think that's I think that's what's abundantly clear in how you're shaping the inheritance project, which is we're going to unpack your stories, the good bits, the ugly bits, um, and really help you understand how that shaped who you are. And there's no judgment here. Mm-hmm. It's just helping you lay out on paper in a way that you haven't really thought about before who you are, what you're about, and what you you really love, and where you see areas and opportunities to inherit more. So not just being about curious about who you are now, but curious about who you could be and who you want to be as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, exactly. We like to think of someone's journey through this process of inheritance in three phases. The first being discovering and exploring. So just becoming aware of who some of these forces that are shaping you. And right now, our online workbook and most of the workshops we do for the public fall in this category of just developing self-awareness and starting this unpacking. And then after we develop some level of self-awareness, you can move into investigate and analyze, which is really taking a deeper dive at some of those things and maybe highlighting some of those specific things or stories or beliefs that you realize aren't serving you. So I realize that the siren is going no, on. <laughs> For those who, for for people who are listening and live in New York, that's just, that's just life on any conference call you're ever on or just anything in your apartment ever. (laughs) I like that we're coming live from New York City. I miss it. (laughs) Yeah, but you're getting some of the authentic soundscape of Brooklyn right now. Um, (laughs) I think 
transform and evolve. So once you've realized what stories you want to change, actually doing the work of changing them and transforming those stories or patterns of behavior or values in yourself. And that can sound simple, but it actually takes a lot of energy and effort to reprogram those neurological pathways in your brain. If you've been thinking a certain way for your whole life, and that especially when that's been reinforced by your society or workplace or the environments that you're in, it takes a lot of conscious effort to, to change that for yourself. And, but it's possible. It just requires conscious tools and practices. And so we ultimately are going to have programs that accompany people throughout that whole process. But right now we're really focusing on the first phase since that's where most people are just open to this idea. Well, and and, and obviously we've spent most of our conversation. Well, I try to time these by 90 minutes because I just feel that's what you're supposed to do. So I'm just um, defying anything. Things that you're supposed to do. (laughs) I know, right. And defying anything I've ever been taught about creating a structured conversation, but and totally front loading this whole conversation around inheritance. But I think it's really important because if you don't get this, then you're not going to get the next question and you're not going to be able to answer the, the next question in the right way with the right parameters and perspective around it. So I think this is a really, really rich conversation. And um, I'm super excited uh, about what you guys are doing and thinking back now to natural born thinkers. So natural born thinkers is about helping you think differently. And and I think, in, you know, thinking differently about your inheritance is one piece, but ultimately the second half of it is helping people think differently and understand themselves and how their mind works so they can ultimately improve their creative capacities. Mm. So, I, I was really interested to see if we could try or, or have a conversation about what might be some of the questions that you would encourage people to discover and ask about themselves to think about how their inheritance has shaped their approach or their perspective and beliefs around their own creativity. Hmm. That's a great question. And I remember so often in our old job facilitating creative problem solving sessions for executive teams, I would hear a lot the phrase, oh, I'm just not creative. I hate that phrase. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And that is not true. That is not a reality. That is a story that someone's been told and a belief that they have held on to. And so the first thing that I would ask people thinking about their inheritance and how it connects their creativity is what are the stories you've been told about your creativity or your capacity for creativity and start to think through and list out what those were. And secondly, what are the beliefs that you are holding on to about your creativity or creative potential? And once you have listed out all those stories, all all those beliefs, and done a inventory of what your unconscious mind or conscious mind might be thinking about your creative abilities to then think, thirdly, okay, well, what if the opposite were true? How would I approach my creative project or endeavor if 
the opposite were true. So I'll give you an example. Maybe you were told that, or the story that you were told is you're really good at music, but you're not good at any other creative endeavor. And that might be holding someone back from pursuing things outside the realm of music. So imagine, just suspend your disbelief and imagine that you're terrible at music. That's just not a skill you have, but you were incredible at everything else. If you were, if you felt you were amazingly creatively and talented at so many other creative domains, what would you do then? How would you approach your creative project or whatever it is in your life? Yeah, I, I think that's a really great first question. It makes me think of, um, there's an extract right at the beginning of Le Petit Prince, the, mm -hmm. the book where the young child has drawn an elephant, very constricted, that's eaten an elephant. And he shows the image to the adults and the adults uh, say, well, what a lovely hat. And it's not a hat. It's clearly a boa constrictor that's eaten <laughs> an elephant. And, you, you know, the author goes on to say, I abandoned my my drawing career right there and then when I realized I wasn't translating to adults who always just look at things in such a linear way. <laughs> and and it's and, you know, there might be some people who have been told as a child, you absolutely suck and have never and never been able to break out of it. So I think going and, as you say, unpacking the stories that have shaped your belief about why you think you're not creative is really great. And I think um, just to help with that, and I am not a neuroscientist, and I've, I've read a lot of books about creativity and neuroscience. And from what I can distill, and I won't promise to be totally, you know, I guess don't, don't quote me on it, but my understanding is that healthy people who are blessed to be born with everything the body's designed to be born with, our brains all have the same functionality. Mm -hmm. So we all therefore have the ability to be, to create. I would say it's our inherent birthright as humans to have access to vast reserves of creativity by, because of what you said, because of the structure of our brains. Right. And so therefore you might say you're not creative. That's, that's not true. You've just, you're just not engaging the parts of your brain in a way that you're comfortable with to help you feel liberally creative. It's a bit like saying, I can't draw. Like I, I genuinely, there's a, there's, you, you'd say it differently. You'd say, I really suck at drawing. Cause I do, I still draw like a five-year-old, but I, I can draw. Yes. I have the 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 mind map and muscle like the mind functionality and the muscle memory in my hand and how to do it, but I just draw like a five year old because that's when I stopped drawing. <laughs> um, say so it's the same. It's like you've got to find a moment where you felt like you stopped creating, mm -hmm. then learning the behaviors or getting curious. There's that word, getting curious about how you might start engaging those parts of the mind that will enable you to create. Mm -hmm. I think another great question, I love what you said about finding the moment that you stopped creating and unpacking that, that memory and realizing, you know, where, where did that actually come from? The origin point, perhaps, of this creative block. And I think the other, the other question that I love to ask people is, well, what are you afraid of? What are your fears around 
doing this creative thing. Um, and for a lot of people, the answer that I get is, well, I've just never done it before, or it's so outside my comfort zone, or I'm afraid that I'll fail in some way, shape or form. It comes down to that. So I think a lot of the time fear holds people back from doing something creative. And also because we hold ourselves to such ridiculously high expectations, like we maybe haven't practiced drawing ever. So of course our drawing doesn't look like a professional artist. <laughs> they practiced for 10,000 hours or more to get there, but we'll never start, we'll never get there if we don't take the first step and do the first hour of practice, um, which so many people shy away from because of that feeling of discomfort. So I think that's again where being able to embrace discomfort actually becomes such an important, su such an important part of, of any of this work, especially in creativity. That, and as you mentioned, time and practice doesn't, it doesn't come overnight. You can't just develop a, a brain. Maybe, maybe you have a nascent capability for this. I think there are people who are, you know, just extremely creative and it comes very easy to them. They're lucky in that respect, yeah. Like we all have our own gifts, but it, you know, if you're one of those people that needs to work at it, you and you really want to be creative, then it will take some time. And then, obviously, you know, in the job that we did, there are tricks and tools that you can use to help jig people's creativity and the way they, their mind needs to think pretty quickly. But if it's something that you just really want to be good at, you, you're going to need to take some time to to build the capabilities. And I, you know, I was thinking about this, as you say, I've been thinking about inheritance for like a couple of months since we first talked about it. And I am a creative person. People who meet me find me either really like it or they find it intensely annoying. <laughs> um, I like it. And I, I just, I never asked myself the question, why am I a creative person? Where has this come from? I never went to museums as a kid. <laughs> I read books, lots of books. My mum was talented. Uh, at cooking, but she didn't design her own menus. My father was an accountant, so creative with numbers. Um, mm -hmm. I had an amazing uh, English teacher, Mrs. Humphrey, who I still think of really fondly, who I remember talking about the idea of purple patches, which I guess was her way of introducing us to the idea of adjectives in our work. So I guess that was my first memory of thinking about where someone was teaching me creativity. And then I used to be a professional swimmer and I used to swim length upon length upon length and I loved it but basically to get through like swimming as many lengths as we did like 80,000 yards a session uh, a week sorry so 5,000 a session your mind has to go somewhere to get through it <laughs> so I just started I guess I was in flow mindset a lot because different thoughts would weave in and wave out of my mind and then also I do a lot of yoga. And again, I, I go into flow mindset and I know you're not just supposed to think about other things during yoga because that's the point, but <laughs> I do. So I think I've had practice at being in flow mindset a lot, which has helped with my creative capacity. So, you know, even me sitting back and saying, hey, I'm a creative person, but actually going through the process of my inheritance and how it shaped me to be a creative person, I found really powerful. Mm, very cool. And I think that I also think a cool investigation for people to do is to look at where creativity might be in your own ancestry and asking your parents and your grandparents if they're still around 
what ways did creativity show up in my own family and see if that inspires you to reconnect with some part of yourself that you've never explored. I also think that we in a society have a really narrow view of creativity and we think a creative person is someone who's really artistic and colorful or something like that. But actually some of the most creative people I know are computer programmers. They are nonstop creating all day um, in the work that they do. And as I liked that you said that your dad was a creative accountant, because I don't know a lot about accounting, but I know that there has to be some creativity involved in there somewhere. You know, it's just sometimes not what we expect. And the other thing is, there's actually a lot of science, I think, and I'm also not a scientist, but have read my pop neuroscience books on creativity too. <laughs> and I, I know that the more that you're in a flow state, the more easy it is for your brain to access a flow state, even if it's doing a different type of activity. So for example, if you really get into a flow state doing pottery, it might be easier for you to then pick up something else, some other skill or craft or, or something that you can get into a flow state with. And so that's why yoga meditation are such powerful practices for creativity because you're training your whole body and brain to be in a flow state, which you can then access much more easily when you're doing work or doing some other creative pursuit. So I'm glad that you brought up yoga as well. Well, yes. And I, I want to talk to you about a bit more about yoga because I know that's the, the second business uh, that you have set up and are you are the founder of. Uh, before we go, I do want to just also highlight your talk about the question about going back into your ancestry to understand your creativity. Because um, I don't know if you're a fan of, but I really am a fan of Netflix Chef's Table yeah. because they don't because they tell the inheritance stories of these amazing chefs, <laughs> which gives you a window into their creativity and, and why they produce the, the work they do, which I find really powerful. And one of them that I watched recently was this lady who uh, was born in Savannah, Georgia, and, and lived there from, I guess, her young childhood and then moved to New York City and then went and worked in a, a pretty well-known New York City restaurant, like one of the boutique ones, not something like per se, and but obviously still really amazing and mission start, I think, um, if I'm remembering correctly. Then she got this opportunity to go out on her own and, funnily enough, go back and, and uh, co-run a, a restaurant in Savannah. And she pulled this menu together based on all the influences that she'd had of where she trained and what she knew how to do, like physically and how to cook. And she shared the menu with her mentor, who was like, your menu is all over the place. So there's maybe a couple of things going on for her there, like her creative mindset had gone riot to really create something that would put her on the map. Like there was maybe a pressure there to be something and be perceived by others in a particular way. And it wasn't until she, I think she went and just took a step back. She was in Savannah and I think she went to just a local diner where they served local fare and local, you know, just traditional food. 
And in there, she just had an epiphany and she went straight back to her childhood. And she started to go through and really start to appreciate everything that was special and uh, all the delicacies that perhaps she just hadn't really thought about before and really diving into, well, hadn't thought about for a while and really going into the environment and what's available in Savannah and what makes Savannah great. And once she got to that, she was able to pull together a menu that's put her on that. Mm. So I just thought that was a really interesting look at how her inheritance, her stories, enabled her to create something truly unique. That's a really powerful story. And it speaks to another principle that I love, which is that the more specific you can be, actually, the more universal you become. That trying to do a bunch of general things that are all different is never going to be as powerful as telling one really incredibly detailed, specific story about that particular context. And through that, you access the universal. And that's why that's what I love about facilitating these kinds of experiences, because I get to hear so many people's incredible stories, and they're so specific. And the more and more diverse stories I hear, the more and more I get the sense that actually, as humans, we have so much in common. And there's such a universal experience underlying all of that. Sorry, there's no polite segue into the next part of the conversation. I'm usually pretty good at making the connections. But we we have to go back to the the yoga and meditation piece. Because, you, you know, when we first started really working together, I know you were a yoga practitioner, as am I. But I love doing my yoga and it's taught me so much, but I'm always, I, I like to call myself an aspirational true yogi <laughs> because I, I've embodied a lot of um, the practice and the lifestyle, but not all of it and, and not necessarily the spiritual side. But I've watched you go on your yoga journey and um, obviously not seen you practice because we do different types, but then you went on to learn to be a teacher and, and develop that capability and then took the exciting step to go on a secondment. We should say that you were very successful in the, in the job that you're in and you took a courageous step to be like, you know what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to follow what I'm passionate about because I think this is going to take me, well, let's find out where this takes me, which I really respect and I think is amazing that you did it. And then you came back and I don't know, I didn't believe for a second you were going to stay at the company after you took this secondment way I knew this would happen you had an enlightenment and you found what you wanted to do and you left and this brings us to the breath connection so do you want to talk a little bit about that because I gave some background because I wanted to provide the color commentary about the, the courageous step you took to go and pursue this and yeah just provide your 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 inheritance and your journey in finding the breath connection and founding the breath connection sure it's been a long journey since I started on this path when I was 19 and actually was, even though my mother is very committed to holistic living and traditional Chinese medicine because of her cultural background and I grew up with that, I was not at all interested in yoga or any of this kind of stuff until I got a knee injury when I was in college. And I got really depressed because I used to run a lot and I couldn't run or do any exercise. And I just had been told that yoga was good for healing injuries and, and it was good for the body. So I started going to 
actually Bikram hot yoga classes in Charlottesville, Virginia. I started having experiences in those classes that were really intense and not at all what I expected from a exercise class. I started having really deep emotional experiences. A lot of the poses would make me cry. I also felt like so many things in my life started shifting when I started going. And I started realizing that there was something a lot deeper here to explore than what I thought. And of course, they don't explain any of this to you really in Bikram yoga. (laughs) So I started (laughs) other yoga places and that a yoga studio that really took a more holistic approach and studying meditation. And at the same time, over the course of this journey, I moved to New York and met my former partner who is a Reiki teacher. And from him, I really learned a lot about energy and the body and the process of of spiritual transformation. That really is the, the goal of yoga is to, to transform our being on every level, physical, emotional, psychological, and let go of these old patterns, sometimes in yoga philosophy, the Sanskrit word they use is samskaras and let go of these samskaras, these limiting beliefs, these limiting patterns in our behavior so that we can become more and more in alignment with who we truly are and and access our true potential. And I really saw this process work on myself that in a couple of years practicing um, I say yoga and meditation because in the U.S. now, yoga is assumed to be just the physical asana practice, but really meditation is the core of yoga right. practice. But that hasn't really necessarily translated in all the places that we have yoga in the West now. But that's a whole not another conversation. Yes, but um, I, I, and yeah. I think it goes into the, the, the meditation bit for, is the, I think, the harder p- bit for people literally to sit with. I have not embraced the meditation part. I find it really really challenging which is funny given that I have classed myself as a creative person who can easily go into flow mindset but for whatever reason I hate sitting down and sitting still and just not thinking of anything so I I think the the yoga is just the physical component is more is more people are feel they could more easily access it Mm -hmm. but then you know I I know you I want sorry just to be a pain but I wanted to share that I totally resonate with your journey your physical journey with the yoga I don't know if this is a crazy link but I think doing yoga is almost like going through and unpacking your physical inheritance of your body (laughs) and learning it in a way that you don't know when you don't do it like I did yoga this morning for the first time in a while and oh god I felt parts of me open up that have just been locked for a while and I just, it got me thinking, like, if I didn't do this, like, if I'm locked up physically, what's the impact or the net effect on me mentally? Yes, because our physical and mental state are not separate. We're all one being. And I, because of these experiences that I was having, I wasn't really satisfied with just learning yoga philosophy, which I did study a lot of, I also really wanted to understand, well, how is this working in the body? And I started studying a lot of 
neuroscience and also scientific research about the nervous system, the human nervous system. Mm-hmm. And how is it that I literally was feeling that certain emotional experiences were stored in my body that through yoga, I was releasing them. And like, what was this mechanism and learning all about biocellular memory that our cells actually have memory and that when we experience, especially traumatic events that creates an imprint in our nervous system, it creates new neural pathways as our brain tries to adapt and remember so with the goal of keeping us safe from harm, right. we've experienced something that we found to be threatened our survival in some way, then our brain literally gets reshaped to try and help protect us. Um, the way we react, the way we hold our body, all of these things are affected. And if you're interested in this, I really recommend reading the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, who's one of the leading researchers on trauma and how it is actually not just a mental or emotional thing, but it is truly a reaction of our nervous system and brain and how to really heal and recondition ourselves. We um, need to work with our nervous system, which we can do in many ways with movement, breath, sound, um, which is why somatic therapy is now becoming a lot more popular and a lot of other treatments that are beyond traditional talk therapy are really, really powerful because we're working to reprogram our whole system. And that brings us back to breath connection because I found the most powerful parts of yoga were really around working with my breath. And I also, Sam, was someone who, when I was a teenager, I could not meditate or sit still. I found it the most frustrating, annoying thing. (laughs) And I know that experience so well. And it was only through doing breath practices that I was able to reach that point. And so when I took this time off to go to India, I really studied a lot of practices around breath. And it integrated a lot with a lot of what I was researching for my own interest on the science of the nervous system. And I always say that the breath is like the remote control to our nervous system. In just a matter of seconds, we can change the way that we feel by changing the way that we're breathing. And our breath patterns are intrinsically linked to our emotional state. So there's different breath patterns for anger, for stress, than there are for relaxation and calm and so many more subtleties in between. And when we change our breath pattern, we send signals to our, we send different signals to our nervous system that can change all sorts of physiological factors from our muscle tension to what's happening in our digestive system to our level of pupil dilation um, because these are all controlled by the autonomic nervous system, the central nervous system in the body that every single reaction in that system happens outside of the conscious control of of our mind except for the breath. The breath is the one thing that we can actually control that can then lead to a whole cascade of different reactions in the body. 
So I realized how powerful this was really the missing link to me between all the yoga that's practiced in the West and then all the meditation practices that are now becoming really much more widespread, but a lot of people still find totally inaccessible, like you said, because so much often if our nervous system is in such a state of high alert or fight or flight, if we feel subconsciously that we're under some kind of threat, our body is not going to be able to relax and meditate. First, we have to calm our nervous system. And learning all about these things and how to how to really shift the state of a human just by changing our breath pattern and how we can reshape our nervous system over time is one of the probably the most empowering thing I've ever learned in my life because I realized that even that I'm not doomed to be stressed or angry or whatever it is, that I can actually have the power to shift how I feel. And this is actually completely connected to everything we were talking about earlier with the inheritance project in that, you know, if I notice that someone else's opinion is making me get emotional, well, the number one tool you can use to shift that feeling is your breath. And actually in a lot of our inheritance project sessions too, we we do breath exercises and somatic exercises because it's so important when we're doing self-investigation to not only do it on the level of the intellectual mind, but to engage all of us because truly all of our our whole body is involved in the, the carrying on of memory. And there's a lot of studies now also showing how trauma is passed in our genes from generation to generation and a lot of really interesting stuff happening in epigenetics that I don't know as much about showing how our environment actually changes the way that our genes are expressed. And so all of these things are deeply physiological and the breath is that mediation point between the intellectual and the emotional and and the physical that anyone can access and anyone can do. So I love, I realize I just rambled a long time. I I, tell you about breath connection. <laughs> no, it was super interesting. And, you know, it's funny how you've shared that because if you look at it on the surface, when you go and do yoga, stretching in all different manners that you've never even contemplated doing before is more inaccessible than sitting down and breathing, <laughs> which you do every day. And, and I, I read, um, really love, um, Laird Hamilton, the big wave surfer is one one of my sort of like, you know, in your life, you just have people who you look, you look at and are inspired by. And I love his um, book, Life Rider, where he, he talks about his perspective on the world and basically how his inheritance has shaped him all the way through his childhood to his surfing career. And, and in that book, they say, the first thing that you do when you're born is take a breath and the last thing that you do when you die <laughs> is take a breath. And mm-hmm. it's just so fascinating that I, I would say, okay, people are really mindful of their bodies, their skin, making sure that, you know, they, they eat well to, to fuel their bodies in the right way. But no one, well, not no one, uh, I would say it's, there are less people who sit down and take the time to check in and, and, make sure the health of their breath is in the right space. 
and technically that well that's that's what keeps us alive <laughs> and it's the most abused <laughs> it's happening all the time and it's affecting how we feel whether we're conscious of it or not and that's exactly right. What I was so not satisfied, I was teaching vinyasa yoga in New York on the side for a few years before I went to India last year. And I was just never satisfied with that modality because I felt like the philosophy of yoga was so broad and encompassing, but yet it was being limited to by people who wanted to wear leggings and do stretches. And drink coconut water. Like- that, that's also fashion in New York. Mocking <laughs> <laughs> um, coconut water. But yeah, it's become a very limiting kind of image. And, you know, if you might have a physical injury, even, you know, I had a shoulder injury during my first yoga teacher training that made doing some yoga classes really hard for me. And it really through through studying so much more variety of breath practices, I now feel like, oh, I can really offer something to anyone, no matter what state of mind they're in or what state they're in physically. If they're totally incapacitated and from an injury and in bed and just breathing, like I can work with that. If they're a super high-performing athlete, I can work with that. And there's breath exercises to challenge those people. Right. So I, I, I also think right now in American yoga, a very small fraction of breath exercises are widely known and taught. And I feel really, really lucky to have learned so, so, so much more that can be applicable and relevant to so many more people. And just to say the Breath Connection is your organization where you you are able to provide curated programs, breathing programs to people to support them where as you said, wherever they might be in their life, might they be an athlete or an executive or maybe someone with an illness who's looking for support? Yes. Uh, the signature program that I have is my 21-day transformative breath program, which is where I work with an individual who commits to doing a 20-minute breathing practice every morning for 21 days. So just setting aside 20 minutes in the morning to be intentional about your breath. And what that practice is depends on the individual and what they're working on. So for example, someone who's really anxious all the time, we might do a practice that's designed to calm their nervous system and be really gentle and relaxing. On the other hand, if someone is struggling with being really low energy, we can do a breath practice. Their breath practice might be really invigorating and a fast-paced breath with um, different practices to help get their blood and oxygen pumping for the for the morning and 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 fuel their brain. So I really work with each individual to tailor that practice. Could you do it for like if someone wanted? Because you talked earlier about you know, getting people into the flow mindset and a connection between flow mindset, yoga, breathing, meditation for people who are looking to get in a creative zone, say. Yes, we can definitely work on, do a breath practice that works on releasing blocks to creativity and accessing a flow state for sure. Cool. Um, and, And yeah, and the other thing apart from working with individuals in that way, which I have to admit, I just love doing because 
just being able to see the transformation that happens in people's lives. Because what we're, we're doing is really reshaping our nervous system so it doesn't, and our brain, and it doesn't just have an impact in those 20 minutes that you're breathing in the morning, but over time, if you practice every day, you're changing the way your brain and your body responds to its environment, which is really, really powerful. Yes. One of the most rewarding things I've done in my life um, is working with people in that way. But uh, aside from those individual programs, I also do programs at companies and conferences about the science of breath and how to incorporate breath into creative processes. And, and I think this is something that my dream workplace of the future is where everyone, before you get together for a team meeting or a innovation session or whatever it is you're doing in your workplace, you take some time to do a specific breath practice that's tailored to helping you get into the right state of mind for that specific meeting or exercise. Because every cognitive toss that we do in the workplace requires different parts of the brain. And you can do different breath exercises to activate different parts of the brain and prime yourself for certain, certain types of thinking. So for example, if you wanted to do a lot of ideation or brainstorming, generating ideas, you really want your body to be in a very relaxed and calm state. Because when we feel stressed or under threat, that's when our the prefrontal cortex in our brain, our, our main center for creativity and a lot of other higher order thinking gets shut down. So on the other hand, if you really want to have a meeting that's all about, I don't know, being focused and prioritizing ideas. There are different exercises that you would do to prime different parts of your brain for that. To get focused. Yes. So I really see all of this as, as optimizing the amazing technology that we have that is our human body, our human brain, our human nervous system, and using the breath to help you be more effective in whatever creative task you might be and you can actually be quite specific about yeah I I'm really glad you brought up the technology piece because I feel that everybody I always I always use these general terms which I really need to stop doing about everybody and anyone but I think if we look at society the trend of society is there's such an obsession with technology and where that's going next and how it can move humanity forwards which I I totally agree with it, it, that there are many benefits to technological advancement particularly if someone can figure out how to do it for climate change <laughs> are we losing sight in this on taking the time to really preserve and enhance our you know, the human mind. <laughs> when we first talked about the connection between the inheritance project and, and the breath connection and like all the ideas of inheritance and breath and could we combine the two in, in one podcast? And as we've talked, it just seems abundantly clear that the work that you are focusing on is helping people take that time to preserve the self and enhance the self and check in obviously on their inheritance who they are as a person how they want to evolve and transform and then you know check in on their nervous system health the power of their breath to help them be a particular a particular way a channel a particular part of themselves in any given situation and also to support them 
with ailments or pieces of themselves they're looking to change. So I, I just, I don't know if that, if I've said that right, but I'm starting to see a connection there between the two. Yes, I think they are deeply connected. And thank you for articulating that for me, because I sometimes will tell people what I do. And I think it can be on the surface hard to make the connection. But if I really look at it holistically, everything that I do is about facilitating experiences and sharing technology that support self-transformation. And through that, through that self-transformation, my aspiration or theory of change is that we can change society and the world because society is a collection of individuals. So if we work on transforming the self, that will have trickle down effects on, or hopefully ripple out effects. Maybe that's a better word. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Ripple out effects into, you know, all aspects of our society, how we organize our companies, how we what policies we have in our governments, how we interact with the earth and our climate and all of those things. And I I really do think it starts with the self. And as cheesy as it is to say, I truly think it's true. um, That quote, if you want to change the world, start with changing yourself. And the thing is, changing yourself is a very hard (laughs) task (laughs) if you don't have any guidance or process from which to start. Right. And and also maybe if you wanted to enhance the quote um, based on the conversation here is getting curious to want to look in and to change the self. Like uh, there's the word curiosity, I think, has been a really important mm. part of this conversation. Mm. Yeah, I love that addition, because if you don't approach things with curiosity, then I think self-transformation or self-development can become this quite boring and arduous task. I feel like there's lots of self-help books or culture out there that, I don't know, just feel like another chore that we have to do to somehow check off that box in our lives rather than realizing that this whole process of self-transformation can be fun and interesting and, and rich and full of curiosity. Empowering as well, as, as you, as you mm-hmm. said earlier too which is a work that I really liked and and you know Mallory this has been a really fantastic conversation and I think the way you just ended it there by summating the your your goal and your purpose and in the work that you do and I can tell you're incredibly passionate about it and I know you're incredibly passionate about it is I think a really great place to end. Thank you so much for having me this has been such a rich and and fun conversation. Yes, thank you so much, Mallory. I really appreciate the time and the conversation. For people who are interested, um, obviously this hasn't been a a sales pitch for what you're doing at all. It's been exploring the connection to thinking differently and and being create and how you can improve your creativity. But I imagine you've obviously shared some books for people to go and um, resource um, and, and look up. But also for those that are interested do i've done it do check out the inheritance projects uh, self-survey don't just think you can do it in 20 minutes it's not one of those psychometric tests you, you need to sit down and think about it and the breath connection as check out mallory's website there and um if you're curious get in touch i i guess if anyone wants to reach out they can find you on your company websites or those are probably the best ways to contact you yes that's right 
Thanks so much, Mallory. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening to the Natural Born Thinkers podcast. More information about today's guest and any of the resources shared during the conversation can be found in the podcast show notes. To find out more about Natural Born Thinkers, please visit the Natural Born Thinkers website and follow us on Instagram at Natural Born Thinkers. Today's show was produced by Rob Lawrence and podcast graphics were designed by Carl Gamble. Natural Born Thinkers is at the beginning of its journey and thank you for joining us on this adventure. Until the next time, 